Hello there, and thank you for joining me. Welcome back to Daniel Talks About Star Wars. This is episode two, and this is the show where I will do exactly as the name suggests. I'm Daniel, and I'll be talking about Star Wars with you today. I know last episode, my first episode, I did say multiple times that next week I would be talking about The Empire Strikes Back. I guess you can call me a liar, because I know it. It hasn't been a week since then, um, but I'm kind of just in the process at the moment of mass-producing <laughs> these first few episodes, so I just thought, hey, why not roll them out more quickly? Um, eventually, I will be going to a, a weekly format, but I thought for now, while I'm covering all the films, I'll just sort of get them out of the way. And so this week, we're carrying on with the original trilogy, the second Star Wars film ever to be made, episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. And this is... Another Star Wars film, like I said with A New Hope last week, that has um, held the prestigious title of being my favourite Star Wars film. And also again, as with episode 4, that is no longer the case. At this point in time, I would consider... In fact, you know what? I'm not going to reveal <laughs> what my favourite one is at the moment, because it could change. Um... And I've got a feeling, after having watched The Empire Strikes Back, that that could very well happen. Because last week, I really enjoyed A New Hope. I feel like in the episode um, that I recorded, I was actually kind of down on it. I don't mean <laughs> I don't mean to have been negative or too negative about it, because I honestly did have a really good time uh, watching it and revisiting it um, last week. However, the same cannot be said for Empire. And that's not to say... Even though I guess I did just say that I didn't enjoy it. I Like, I did. N whenever it sounds like I'm going to be negative about any of these films, just know that I do, like, love the good majority of them. So, even though I've pretty much just said I didn't enjoy The Empire Strikes Back, of course I did. But what I mean is that, especially since it was once my favourite Star Wars film, you know, quite quite recently, in fact, I would have said that, you know, up until you know, a year or two ago. Yeah, this time I noticed quite a few flaws and a few things that kind of stood out to me. And even though last week I would have said, or, well, I did say, that um, episode four would sort of been m middle of the, of the list if I were to rank the films, I'm just going to say right out of the gate that after this most recent rewatch of Empire, I would actually say I like A New Hope more at the moment. Um, that certainly resonated with me a lot, a lot more than um, Episode 5 did this time round. So, yeah, let's get into it. Let's explore why that may have been. Although, before I do get into any sort of specifics, I do just want to build off of something that I sort of alluded to last week, which is how I think this film definitely is responsible for how Star Wars is today. Empire is just Star Wars, like, through and through. And, I, well, I suppose I will get in more into what I mean by that, actually, as I do talk about the film. Let's just dive right in and we can explore what exactly I mean by that. So, yeah, obviously we start in Norway, I do believe, on the planet Hoth, which is immediately... Uh, big change from what we saw in the last film, which is something that I think Empire does do exceedingly well. At every opportunity, it does differentiate itself from the previous instalment. It doesn't just try to do that again. It is very deliberately a different 
film altogether, and I think that is very admirable, and I'm glad they did it that way. And yeah, it's immediately apparent, you know, we go to this icy wasteland, basically. No disrespect to Norway, if indeed that's where it was even shot. <laughs> um, we see the probe droids released from the Star Destroyer after the crawl is finished, and one obviously finds its way to Hoth. Uh, we see Luke and Han. The gang is back together immediately. And what's quite impressive to me is that somehow Harrison Ford, Han Solo, is even cooler here than he was in A New Hope. And I don't just mean because it's cold on Hoth. <laughs> and the budget, the increased budget, is immediately noticeable. I think when Han makes his way back to Echo Base and there's that hangar, it's so massive and busy. There's so much going on and it like all the money is there on the screen. Um, I don't think any of the production issues and sort of inconsistencies that I spoke about in the last episode are here at all. Like this film looks like a million bucks. Well, it, you know, several millions of dollars um obviously like it's just you can't fault any aspect of the production i don't think here it looks incredible they use all of their resources the best they can and yet it's it's evident straight away that echo base set that hangar is is really something but uh, just quickly jumping back a second obviously um before han um arrives Back at Echo Base, Luke is taken out by the Wampa and dragged away to its cave. And so that's quite a shocking opening, really, to just have the uh, the protagonist um, out of action immediately. <laughs> there are the... I think it's speculation. I don't know if this has ever been properly confirmed, but um, it is speculated that the only reason for that whole Wamper attack um, is to justify Mark Hamill's facial differences, shall we say, um, compared to how he looked in the previous film and then in this one, because, you know, he was in a car accident or something, like, between the two. So that's always been the sort of excuse that I've heard as to why this whole thing exists. I'm not sure how true that is. I think Mark Hamill has denied that, but yeah, even aside from any sort of real-world reasons, this kind of does contribute to a big problem I have with this film, and this is the first example of it, that a lot of it feels like a waste of time, to be quite honest. If you listen to the first episode, you'll know that I wasn't a huge fan of the trash compactor scene in A New Hope, and it was for those kind of reasons that I don't feel like that scene adds anything to the film it kind of feels like a waste of time like we're just kind of filling time with sort of needless tension and that th there's no real reason for it and i kind of feel that way about a lot of things in this film which i will get onto. but this is definitely the first example of it like you know any real world reasons aside i don't understand why this whole wampa thing even happens like why we need to have luke taken out like that straight away and then have Han go after him and like you know because it takes up a good chunk of the first part of the film it doesn't really feel like the film actually gets going until until the battle of Hoth which is a shame and I do like everything on Echo Base I do like Hoth as a setting and I don't think anything um as opposed to 
the trash compactor scene in the last one. I don't actually dislike anything these first few scenes because there are good moments in them. But yeah, it is quite strange and I do feel like that about quite a lot of segments in this film. But we'll get onto that when we get onto them. Um, Going back a bit again, obviously no one actually knows what has happened to Luke. So Han takes it upon himself to go out and look for him and hopefully rescue him. And we have... What I considered when I was younger <laughs> to be the single most badass line in the history of cinema when <laughs> Han Solo says, well, then I'll see you in hell, as uh, he's responding to some disgruntled rebel, which, yeah, for some reason, um, when I was a kid, that was just the epitome of cool. I was like, damn, he said hell. <laughs> and that takes us into the Wampa Cave, where I find myself once again talking about the special edition changes. Out of all three of the original films, Empire definitely seems like the one that was least affected by any special edition touch-ups and additions. They're definitely there, um, but they're just less in your face like they are, especially like in the last one. I feel like I was talking about special edition changes every five minutes. But yeah, here um, the entire Wampa scene has been kind of redone, um, which I think is to the film's benefit. The Wampa uh, creature effects in the original theatrical cut are not great from what I remember. And there is one brief shot of the original Wampa um, in this scene, but it's mixed in and it's quick enough that you don't really notice it. But yeah, that shot in particular, compared to everything new that they've done with the Wampa, it really pales in comparison. So I think to the film's benefit, the improvement of the Wampa is an improvement overall. And yeah, that whole scene is good and we get our first kind of expansion of what the Force can do. Luke is obviously, he can't quite reach his lightsaber, so he focuses himself and he reaches out his hand and he pulls the lightsaber towards him, which is something that we didn't see in the in the first film. Um, I think the closest thing to that was when Obi-Wan kind of uh, just causes a little distraction on the Death Star. He distracts two stormtroopers, I think, just by kind of waving his hand and I think knocking something over in the background. I don't think we can see what he does. Um, we just hear the noise. But yeah, that's the closest kind of thing to that. But again, that is kind of more like how I was trying to explain in, in my last episode. That was more like influence. The Force was kind of this kind of extension of oneself in this and it was kind of just like a little helping hand to kind of enhance you but here you know straight out of the gate we kind of have this uh you know it's like telekinesis you know so it is it is becoming more of a power as opposed to how it was portrayed more quietly in the last film but i don't think that's a problem i think it's just an interesting um difference and then not long after that obviously we have our first look at a force ghost obi-wan appears in a th ethereal form to Luke, you know, like a ghost. Um, so a far cry from his, well, not a far cry, um, but, you know, again, quite the upgrade from his disembodied voice in the last one. You know, now he can physically appear. We see in the next film that he can interact with the physical world, but that's, obviously, that's for next episode. So yeah, the Force has already taken quite the turn since A New Hope. It's been kind of dialed up to 11, which is perfectly fine. You know, I've got no issues with that. It, it's cool to see the Force do these new and exciting things. So 
Yeah. But yeah, Luke escapes the, the Wampa Cave. He speaks to Ben. Ben is like, hey, go and find Yoda. He's on the Dagobah system. He taught me. Which is something that, of course, is later contradicted by the prequels. Which I suppose I'll touch on here. Obviously, we come to learn, obviously, in The Phantom Menace that Obi-Wan was, in fact, taught by Liam Neeson himself, Qui-Gon Jinn. So yeah, obviously, that's, you know, a pretty big inconsistency. The fact that Obi-Wan here says Yoda, he's the Jedi that instructed me. But it's not really that big of a deal. I think they do go their ways to kind of rectify that in the prequels anyway, by having Yoda basically teach every uh, Jedi at some point. You know, he's kind of like a, a primary school teacher. You know, he, he just um, he teaches like a class of younglings. I think that's how they kind of want to go around that uh, in the prequels, which is fine. And even then, if that doesn't work for you, you know, it's not the kind of thing that ever really bothers me. You know, I don't like it when there's inconsistencies. But the way I view things is always sort of in the context of how things were when they were released. So a prequel can never ruin, or a sequel in that fact, can never like ruin um, the film before or, you know, an original. Which in that sense, I think I'm quite uh, lucky to sort of have that kind of viewpoint because i know that people get really uh hung up on inconsistencies like that but no i i don't ever think about the prequels when i'm watching you know uh the empire strikes back or any of these original films i, I always view them as if that's kind of the latest one that's how it is in my head you know i'm not thinking when obi-wan says that well actually hold on qui-gon jinn was his master because it just doesn't even you know i know that when this was made obviously that wasn't even a thing so it doesn't bother me it doesn't affect me in any way, sort of, with that being the case, sort of, later down the line, if that makes any sense. Um, it's just something I wanted to mention, because, well, because I did. <laughs> but anyway, um, sorry, that's a little tangent. But, um, yeah, Luke escapes, and Han finds him. And we have this strange moment, which is kind, kind of reminds me of how I felt about what happened to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru in the last film. We have that moment where Han cuts open that dead torn torn that's just fallen dead because of the cold i think and he cuts it open and we have this like close-up shot of it being you know cut open and we see its insides it's a strange it's a strange inclusion because again like what i said with uncle owen and aunt Beru in a new hope it's unlike anything else in the film and i don't think we ever get anything like that again in any star wars film so it's weirdly graphic and not that it's like because obviously it's this fake alien animal so it's not like watching a person get cut open or anything but still strangely yeah graphic and a weird inclusion but you know it's not <laughs> the end of the world it is just something i sort of thought and yeah we see the surge party for both of them in the next scene and we and we have an example of something that i think star wars just does so well and i don't think any other film franchise can do this which is just to put a spotlight on these minor characters i spoke a bit about in the last episode how a lot of the sort of supporting characters kind of did stand out to me and how i liked the actors that portrayed them and i just kind of liked the characters as written and perf and as performed. And yeah, this film is no exception. In this scene, we sort of get a little spotlight on Rogue 2, Zev Seneska, I think. Yeah, it's just... And it's, it's definitely down to the fact that we get toys of all these characters and, and things like that. It's definitely down to, like, the branding and the, the marketing side of Star Wars. But, you know, you can't deny that there is a charm to the 
to these side characters and I like the fact that a lot of them do get these small moments to kind of shine and I don't and again I don't think any film franchise sort of does that which is it's just nice it's a nice little sort of exclusively kind of Star Warsy thing that there are so many the universe is just so abundant with all these small characters and you know even these characters that only have maybe you know 10 lines well not even that seems like a lot <laughs> you know very few lines of dialogue can potentially be somebody's favorite and i think that's something only star wars can do so but yeah uh rogue squadron find luke and han so they're rescued luke is in the back to tank he's recovering and it was here when just before the the kiss which we'll get on to as they're all in that kind of little room with you know, Luke is in the bed, and Han and Chewie are there, and Leia is there as well. And I can't help but feel, and I, I might talk about this as the film goes on, but Leia gets a little done dirty in this one. Because I really like Leia, and I think in the last one she was she was great. Even though she was a prisoner for the good majority of New Hope, I still feel like she had much more agency in that one. And this is no fault of, you know, Carrie Fisher's or the character... Uh, herself but I think in this one she kind of is she kind of is just left to sort of roll her eyes at Han and then they sort of have their love story which is you know which is nice but she's just kind of there to give him stern looks until she doesn't anymore and in fact she loves him and then obviously with what happens at the end of the film then she's kind of giving him like sad looks and I just feel like she's there to enhance Han's character and his story and and sort of their story together but not the other way around I don't feel like I feel like she does a lot for him but it's not reciprocated and I don't mean that in terms of like characters feelings I mean that in terms of the writing so I feel like Leia kind of takes a back seat in this one which is a shame to see but I'll, I'll talk a bit more about it later if it if I feel like it I need to but yeah, so that is a shame, and that is something that I sort of didn't really notice until um, this most recent rewatch. But yeah, then we have that kiss, which I'm not going to say an awful lot about because, you know, it's been talked about and parodied to death, I'm sure. But yeah, it in hindsight, it is strange. <laughs> That's all I can really say about it. But hey, if I harped on about it, yeah, I would be completely contradicting what I said earlier about how future films in the franchise don't affect my feelings towards towards previous ones so i'm gonna move right on and after all this prologue on hoth we finally see not for the first time because we did see obviously the star destroyer after the opening crawl um when it deployed all the probes but for the first sort of proper time we see uh the imperials the empire and again you can see all the extra money on the screen for this kind of introduction because there's not one Star Destroyer, there's about 50 <laughs> on the screen. And then we get a look at the Super Star Destroyer, the Executor, I think it's called, Vader's personal flagship, I think. And yeah, I absolutely love the Star de the Super Star Destroyers, sorry. Even though they're just massive triangles, I think, kind of like what I said about the Sandcrawler in the, the last episode... The design is very simplistic, but I just think it absolutely works. I love the Super Star Destroyers, how huge they are, and just, yeah, those, that, that very angular 
sharp design just absolutely works and it absolutely dwarfs the the normal star destroyers and in the first shot that we get of vader not only is he lovely and shiny as he wasn't in uh the last one so they've given him a nice polish but it's almost as if well it probably was obviously they knew how much of a, of a success the first one was and you just get that introductory shot of darth vader but you only see the back of him so you just see the back of his helmet but i'm sure that would have been enough for people to sort of like all sit up in their seats and, and start getting excited, you know, I'm sure. After how much of a hit the first one was, they knew exactly what they were doing with that shot, I'm sure. Just uh, seeing Vader from behind, I'm sure it was quite exciting to see him again. And, and, and we're introduced to some more minor characters that I personally quite like. There's quite a few good Imperials in this film. I do, I do give it credit for that. Here we meet Admiral... Well, not Admiral just yet. Captain Piet and Admiral... Ozzel, um, as well as General Veers. Three pretty iconic Imperials, I think. And yeah, they've they've found they've found Hoth. And so Vader turns to General Veers, played by Julian Glover, and I don't think he was meant to be quite as close to him as he as he was. There is quite an awkward moment where he turns and the camera kinda moves with him and General Veers is just standing right there. It's quite funny. And as we return to the rebels, they're kind of gearing up for the upcoming battle, and it was here again that I really noticed the, the scale and the kind of solidness of the production of this one. And I'm talking about a moment in particular where Luke and Han are kind of saying goodbye as Luke is getting ready to go and join in the battle, and Han is standing atop the Millennium Falcon as they're trying to, um, as they're trying, him and Chewie are trying to fix it. And there's just a, a, a brief moment where the camera kind of tilts upwards to Han. And, you know, to show him standing up on, on the ship. And it's just the kind of thing that I don't think you would have gotten in the last one because of their restrictions. But here, all the budget and more was used to bring these incredible sets to life. And there's such scale here compared to the last one. And I think it's it's really impressive. You know, I talked a lot about how, you know, mainly the special effects, but I did talk about um, how a lot of the production I thought was really, really quite good in the last one, but here they've stepped it up tremendously, and it's it's clear. But jumping back to the Imperials just before the battle properly gets going, it's nice to see Vader in the leadership position, which obviously was kind of given to Grand Moff Tarkin, may he rest in peace, in the last film, and Vader was kind of the, I don't know, the thug if, you know, he didn't seem like he was top dog. Um, but here, with Moff Tarkin out of the way, he is fully in control. Well, not fully. Obviously, there's the Emperor. But he pr pretty much is, you know, it's his show that he's running. And, um, yeah, it's nice to see him in that position. It definitely does a lot to um, enhance his character. Um, just because of how sidelined he kind of is in the first film. Um and it is necessary as well as the story becomes a lot more personal to him and to Luke. Um, so yeah, good job with that. <laughs> and yeah, and we get another example as well of the Force being a lot more amped up in this one. You know, Vader isn't uh, choking someone from across the room this time. He's doing it from across space. He starts choking out Admiral Ozzel who I assume is on a completely different Star Destroyer, so... Or he could just be on the bridge of the Executor, to be fair. Maybe he is. He probably is, actually. But even then, it's still quite the distance compared to what we saw 
in the first film. So, yeah. And that's when Captain Piet is promoted to Admiral Piet. So, good for him. Um, he is another minor character that I really enjoy. And I'm glad he gets to uh, stick around throughout the majority of this film and into the... Well, all of this film and then into the next one. It's nice to see some of these Imperials survive. Um, but yeah, then we have the Battle of Hoth, which I've got to say is not my favourite battle. Um, when it comes to these kinds of action sequences, I, I, for one, I definitely prefer space as opposed to like land battles. So in that sense, it just doesn't really do it for me on that level. But I kind of, it's at this point where I do kind of begin to tire of the the Hoth landscape, you know, it isn't exactly the most, it's not the most exciting place visually, so that kind of lets it down for me. I don't exactly like the snow speeders very much as vehicles, they're not particularly exciting to me. Obviously here we get the 8080s, which, or ATATs, I prefer 8080, um, but it doesn't really matter. But yeah, obviously those are iconic, um, and it is nice to see something different. Obviously we've just come from a space battle in the last one, so to do something a bit different uh, here was is, was probably the better idea, I think, just to me personally. It just doesn't do much for me personally, but I don't think it's meant to be the grandest battle at the end of the day. It's only just something at the start of the film to kind of get us out of the first act, I think, just something exciting to um, tide us over. Um, so in that sense, I guess it does exactly what it needs to. As I said, personally, for me, it's just not, it's not for me. One moment that did kind of make me laugh when Luke uh, tells Rogue Two Zevsineska that he's going to cover him. Uh, I think they're just trying to take down an AT-AT or something. I think he's getting Zev to to deploy the tow cables to obviously trip up the AT-ATs. That's their, that's their tactic. And so I think Luke is saying that he'll cover Zev while he does that. And then, and then Zev dies. So... I guess Luke wasn't covering him very well. <laughs> um, I don't know, that just kind of stood out to me. But yeah, the Rebels are kind of forced to get out of there as quickly as they can. Um, the Imperials find their way into Echo Base, so and Darth Vader himself is, is down there. And it's here that I am once again reminded, as I mentioned in the first episode, just how much I dislike David Prowse's performance as Darth Vader. And I don't mean to rag on the guy. You know, I'm sure he's doing the best he can but I really do think it detracts from Vader as a character. Um, just seeing him walk around Echo Base like he does, it's just not... He doesn't carry himself the way that you th sort of think Darth Vader would. I was thinking about, and I'm jumping ahead quite a lot here, but Kylo Ren, that is a character that obviously has the advantage of being physically and uh, vocally portrayed by the same guy. It's all Adam Driver, so... In that sense, it is easier to have a more cohesive character when, when that's the case. But still, Adam Driver is so deliberate with the way he portrays Kylo physically, especially when he's got the mask on, because obviously he needs to you know, convey that character through, through the costume. So it's a shame that we don't get that with Darth Vader, because the way he moves, it, it reminded me of... Michael Keaton in Batman like he didn't look like he he looked like he had trouble moving which to be honest he probably did so I'm sure he's trying his best working through that pretty restrictive outfit but still I'm kind of struggling to look past it I think it it does nothing for the character unfortunately and I think that's a shame but yeah our heroes have to escape Hoth they're separated we got um 
well, Luke and R2-D2 off, off on their own. He's heading to Dagobah. And then we've got Han, Leia, Chewie, C-3PO there, just trying to evade the Imperials. And the flying is so much flashier in this one. Like, they really stepped it up. And it looks fantastic. Like, the Falcon's doing all these barrel rolls. And it's just... It's a lot more impressive than what we saw in the first film. And that, that asteroid field scene is really quite something it's exciting that music is incredible as well the asteroid field track by john williams is really excellent and because the hyperdrive isn't working they have to find safety within one of these asteroids one of these giant ones and they find a crater thing that they can kind of fly in and hide from the imperials for some time and so while they're all doing that uh we go back to luke and he's as i said heading to dagobah to try and find yoda as obi-wan told him to and we get to dagobah and i never really thought about it till now i think it's this is obviously a testament to how good the set is but i just never even really considered well how good it is because it just looks so real, and it, it's a totally believable place. Um, obviously, if you kind of think about it, it is, you know, it's obvious that they've just got the smoke machine out, you know, to create the fog and things like that. So if you kind of take a step back and kind of think about it, obviously it is just this giant set, but it's believable enough, I think, that, yeah, it deserves um, some credit, because I only really kind of even thought about it until now until this most recent rewatch to be like oh yeah that's a that's a set and it's it's really good and it's a nice change of pace from what we got in the last film again as well um so that's all good once luke arrives we quickly hop back to darth vader and it's here that we get our very first look at darth vader without his mask just a very brief glimpse which to be honest i'm very surprised that they do in this film you know it's only the second the second one obviously and but they're already showing us just giving us little teases and i gotta say the very brief glimpse of vader that we do get that makeup looks incredible i kind of think it looks even better than what we eventually see in the next film. That scarring and those burns looked a lot more severe and painful than what we eventually get in Return of the Jedi. So that's a really good tease, and I'm sure at the time it was very exciting to kind of get a quick look beneath the mask. And to get some confirmation just very vaguely about what's even going on with Darth Vader, because I'm sure at the time, you know, again, like with the last episode, we kind of have to try and put ourselves in the mindsets of people in 1980 you know i'm sure many people still didn't really well i mean nobody knew who who darth vader was and what he was about i'm sure lots of people thought he was a robot i'm sure people had many theories as to why he wore the armor that he did and here we get a just a quick little tidbit that yeah he has to because he is burned to a crisp um <laughs> so yeah that that's all good and then back on dagobah there's a lot more hopping back and forth uh, the various characters in this one, which obviously that's because they're all split up, but it's quite noticeable because a lot of the first film was so focused on showing you it pretty much solely from the perspective of Luke once he is finally introduced. You know, it's all kind of Luke's, it's Luke's journey, but obviously with this one we have various viewpoints and we have back on Dagobah what is, in my opinion, Luke's best look i think this costume has become known as luke's bespin fatigues but it's just this this very simple i guess kind of boring to be honest outfit but yeah i know uh, most people probably like his jedi look from the next film the best but yeah i'm 
I'm all about this look from Empire all the way, especially towards the end when he starts getting all tatty during his fight with Vader. But yeah, I really like it. And I think this is also Han's best costume. I like his blue jacket. Then again, I do love his Endor look as well. Han's wardrobe is pretty good, to be fair. I don't think you can go wrong with uh, his. But it also contains Princess Leia's best look in this original trilogy, at least for me. I love what she wears when she's on Bespin as well. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Of course, we have the introduction of Yoda, who is one of my favourite Star Wars characters. I think especially in this film, he's just so, so well realised. The puppet looks incredible. The performance by Frank Oz is amazing. The way Mark Hamill reacts to it and acts against it is really convincing. Everything with Yoda in this is just really on point. And yeah, just the, the nice touches that Frank Oz brings to it, the way the way his ears move and the way he, he plays it. And then having things... I don't know where I heard this. I'm sure I've heard it where Frank Oz wanted to make sure there were various moments where we could see Yoda's feet. Because that would that would then break the illusion for the audience that he would just be like this puppet with somebody's hand below frame every time we saw him. So like if we actually saw his feet in the audience's mind, that would then make him a fully realised and, and completely real character. Which, yeah, that totally works. There's a few moments where we do see his feet, like where he's on his hands and knees when he's rummaging through all of Luke's stuff. And yeah, it's really it's really good. And it, go, it does go a long way to painting Yoda as this tangible character. And it's just, it is just fantastic. And, and he's spitting straight knowledge right away. You know, he says to Luke, wars not make one great. Yeah, he's immediately testing Luke, not only by being annoying but he's also you know educating him trying to remind luke best he can or kind of show luke the best he can what the things he needs to be thinking about and he kind of needs to change his way of thinking um he's doing all that right away so yoda right off the bat is just yeah incredible and a real highlight if not the highlight of the film for me and i think this is probably a good time to mention properly the music i talked a bit earlier about the asteroid field track John Williams steps it up massively in this one. There's so many great tracks. We've got Yoda's theme, which is one of my favourite pieces of music of all time. We've got the Imperial March. That was earlier when we sort of first got our proper look at the Imperials again. Obviously, that was absent from the last film. And here, you know, that's probably, gosh, dare I say, the most well-known. I mean, between between that, the main title theme and the Force theme, like, those three tracks have got to be the most well-known pieces of music from the entire saga. So, to have it only... To have the Imperial March only just come into it now is pretty crazy to think about, really. But yeah, that's here. We've got Lando's Palace later. That's a really nice piece. A lot of the music that plays later on during the Luke and Vader fight, that's all good. We've got Han and Leia's uh, love theme, which is fantastic. You know, so lots of really iconic tracks a lot of tracks that i really love um it's just a massive improvement on the last film which was already fantastic and then of course we've got the returning themes of as well so yeah it's just amazing and john williams is just incredible but we all know that so not too long after we meet yoda um we also have the introduction of another important character the emperor and i gotta say i'm not a huge fan of the scene where Vader speaks to him. I know we need to sort of have the reveal to Vader that Luke is his son, 
Um, and I don't know how else you would have gone about doing it, but I kind of wish they had thought of a different way of doing it because I don't think this Emperor scene kind of re- really works, to be honest. This is a special edition change as well. They had... I don't know who the original actor was for the Emperor, but they've since gone back and replaced it with Ian McDermott, which does, you know, does make sense, obviously, because he would go on to portray the Emperor for the rest of his life, (laughs) as recently as last year. So, you know, it does make sense to go back and add him in. I think they did. I think they filmed him doing this scene during the making of Revenge of the Sith. I would assume that's where it was, because the makeup looks the same as it does in that film. But yeah, I just don't like it. I almost wish, to a certain extent, that they'd have kept the original actor, just because I think it ruins... It doesn't ruin, it just spoils the surprise of the Emperor in the next one, because I think he's so fantastic in the next film. It's a shame to kind of have him here, not displaying much in the way of personality, or, you know, all the dialogue is kind of... He's just not given an opportunity to really shine, and I think it's a shame to get the Emperor in a scene that's kind of as mundane as this one is. And, you know, that's our introduction to him, so I don't think it quite works. I feel like this, the way people feel about the Jabba the Hutt scene from the previous film, the fact that that was re-included in A New Hope, spoils for a lot of people the surprise of seeing him in Return of the Jedi. I don't feel that way personally. But I kind of do feel that way with the Emperor here. But going back to uh, Yoda, um, we get the reveal that obviously he is who Luke is searching for. He drops the kind of goofball act and it's made clear to us that he was just doing that to wind Luke up and kind of prove what Yoda already thinks about him, which is that he's not ready, he's too impatient to become a Jedi and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then Obi-Wan has to kind of hop in and say, hey man, you gotta train him though, please, because <laughs> if you don't, we're all screwed. So so for the rest of the film, we get serious Yoda, which is fine, because I love me some Yoda, and I love the, the wisdom and the knowledge that he drops. Um, you know, that's all really good, but I gotta admit, I, I do miss... I do miss fun, fun silly Yoda. I think he is quite funny and he's a joy to watch, I think. Um, So it is a shame that um, for the rest of the series, you know, Yoda is a bit more, well, you know, he's more reserved and kind of more, dare I say, boring. He's not boring. I love Yoda. But it is a shame that he doesn't get to be as fun and as animated as he is in his first few scenes in this film. But after that, we jump back to... Han and Leia, and we have their love story developing, which is nice to see because Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher, they're good together, and they make a nice couple. It's nice that they that they did decide to subvert the expectations that a lot of people probably had, I think, that you know her and Luke would probably end up together, obviously with Luke being the main protagonist, but no, uh, she gets together with the roguish supporting character, so good for them. But yeah, this whole thing with them hiding in the asteroid or well hiding inside the giant space slug that they think is an asteroid feels a lot like what i was saying at the start of the film with the whole wampa stuff with luke a lot of what i talked about um with the trash compactor scene in the last film um a lot of this film does feel an awful lot 
like time wasting, like Han and the gang are pretty much just sitting around twiddling their thumbs until they get to go to Cloud City, which really stood out to me um, when I watched it again last night. And it's not the most effective use of their time, to be honest. The, the Han and Leia kind of love stuff only takes up a small chunk of it, you know, that is kind of developed quite quickly, and it is good, and I do enjoy it, but to potentially argue that that's the point of these scenes, um, while they are just waiting around, um, would be incorrect, I personally feel, and I do feel like they could have done more to make these characters a bit more proactive in their subplot, because as it stands at the moment, I don't think it's great, to be honest. And it's the first time I've ever really noticed that, and so it's the first time I've ever felt this way. I think at this point they have the whole encounter with the Minox, and then they have to escape the asteroid, because of course they realise it's not an asteroid at all. And I think after that we return to Dagobah, where we have Luke training. And I've got to say, Yoda as Luke's backpack is such a silly image. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, there's not a lot more I can say about it. Um I love it, but god is it is it silly. And yeah, we have the the cave scene or just before that, we have Luke. He senses that there's something not quite right about the cave and he asks Yoda what's in there and he says only what you take with you. So Luke gets ready to go in. He's get, getting ready to put his belt on with all his weapons and Yoda says your weapons, you will not need them. Luke ignores him and puts on his belt anyway and carries on. Gotta say, Luke really sucks in this film. And I don't mean that like I don't like his character, because I do. But I just mean his whole attitude is awful. And obviously that's the point. And I like the fact that he is like that. Um, but yeah, that leads us into the cave scene, which I think is really good. They do what they can with the sort of technology and what they had at their disposal at the time to make the cave scene feel different and kind of trippy in its own way compared to obviously the rest of the film they don't have the means to kind of make it as you know the, the similar sort of scene from the last jedi for example with ray having her cave vision moment sort of thing they couldn't do anything quite as flashy as that so they visually they make it different by kind of making it that slow-mo um and then with the music as well i think if I'm remembering correctly, um, this is something the soundtrack show taught me. This is the one and only, or potentially just the first time, but maybe the only as well, um, use of a synthesizer in a score for Star Wars. And when the scene really ramps up and he's just going to town on that synthesizer, it's really effective. And it, go, it does go a long way to making this scene feel kind of uneasy and just different, um, which obviously was the point. And I think it's a really good scene. The way that uh, it's revealed Luke's face is under that Darth Vader helmet. It's really excellent. Something that completely went over my head as a, as a kid. <laughs> I was just like, what on earth is happening? But as Yoda said, you know, um, Luke says, what's in there? Yoda says, only what you take with you. So... You know, Luke's taking in a lot of anger, a lot of uh, frustration, I'm sure. Um, and the cave is telling him, look, this could be you. So you better buck up your ideas, son. And yeah, it's a really good scene. And from that, we move back to the Empire and we've got the Bounty Hunters. And this is a scene that I really like because 
it's completely unnecessary. We could have easily just had a scene where Darth Vader spoke to Boba Fett alone. Maybe he communicated with him somehow over comms or the hologram chat, the Zoom call maybe, and just said, hey, look, listen, you're the best guy for the job. I need you to find the Millennium Falcon. But no, you know, they take the time and they put in the effort to have all these different bounty hunters just aboard this Star Destroyer for no real reason, because we don't see any of them again. <laughs> um, you know, it's only Boba Fett from, you know, af- after this scene. So the fact that we've got Bosk, Forlom, IG-88, Dengar, Zuckus, I think that's it. And um, I mean, obviously Boba Fett. The fact that they're all in there is just a really nice touch. And not too long after that, we also get one of my favourite Star Wars bit players, Captain Nida. He's one of my favourite minor Star Wars characters, just because I like how he seems like a very noble and fair man, as many of the Imperials often don't seem. And yeah, I just like the way he is, and I, I like the fact that he is he's willing to take the blame personally for losing the Millennium Falcon. He's going to take a shuttle over to Darth Vader and apologise. I just, I like that about him. It's a nice touch, and it's a shame that he gets choked out, as seems to happen with all of my favourite Imperial characters now that I'm thinking about it. They they end up dead, you know, Motti, Tarkin, now Nida. It's a shame. And I just found out today, quickly, going on a tangent here, as I record this, I'm sorry to break the illusion, but it's not yet December. Um, in fact, the From a Certain Point of View Empire Strikes Back book isn't out yet, so that should give you a rough idea of when I'm recording this. It's out soon, um, but I just found out today, as I looked through all the uh, different characters that are going to be featured, that there is no story from the perspective of Captain Nida, and that really upset me, because <laughs> I'm sure I was, I thought that would be a given, you know, he's a character that's small enough, but at the same time big enough in his small role that he would warrant, from a certain point of view, short story dedicated to him, but I guess not. Um, so that that's just a personal disappointment for me. But yeah, jumping back to Dagobah, we have Luke continuing on with his training, and suddenly he gets a vision of the future, which obviously is another thing that we're being introduced to through the Force, the fact that you know, people can have premonitions, they can see the future, and he sees Han and Leia in danger, and yeah, this is when he says he sees City in the Clouds, and then in the very next scene we are introduced to Cloud City, to Bespin, which, again, I love the fact that the environments in this are so diverse. And I love Bespin, I love Cloud City, I love the way it looks, and it's just nice. It's different to, not only different to everything we've seen before this, but also I don't think there's any other location in the Star Wars films that I quite like Bespin. It's very unique, even among the, you know, the ten other films um, in the franchise. So, yeah. And, of course, Cloud City means we meet Lando. Lando Calrissian, played by Billy D. Williams. And i got to say, he is another one of my favourite Star Wars characters. I think Billy D. plays him wonderfully. I think he's cooler than Han Solo, who was already the coolest guy in the galaxy. So to have somebody that can even outclass him, um, he's got to be pretty good, he's so smooth, I absolutely love him, like, Billy D was just, he is Lando, he said as much, he absolutely is Lando through and through, and you can see it, his performance is so natural, and so we're going through Cloud City, and we have another moment that I'm not a huge fan of, um, again, which kind of feels like time-wasting, like, why 
did this need to happen when C-3PO gets shot for no real reason? I'm sure that was probably quite a shocking moment at the time, because people probably just assumed that C-3PO had just been killed, and they would be forgiven for thinking that because he's shot to pieces. But within the next few scenes, he's uh, pieced together again by Chewie, and he spends the rest of the film unable to walk, but he's fully functional, like nothing... Nothing really changes as a result of um, as a result of him getting shot. He just has to spend some time on Chewie's back, and so it's just another moment where I just think, why did this need to happen? But yeah, from there we go back to Dagobah, where Luke is adamant that he has to leave. Um, he has to go and help Han and Leia, and Yoda and Obi Wan are very rightly like, this is exactly what Vader wants you to do, you idiot you should stay and complete your training, but obviously he's not going to do that. And Luke is really screwing himself over, but I like that about him. I like the fact that he is kind of as everybody says he is, like he's reckless and he doesn't listen and he is all of those things and he kind of has to go through this horrible ordeal at the end of the film to uh, kind of set him straight, I think, and set him up to be better in the next film. But I think... I don't think it's fair when people call Luke whiny and, and things like that. You know, to he to a certain extent he is, but I think his character is just... His character is realistic and his character is very well realised. And I don't think we're supposed to... I mean, obviously we're supposed to be on Luke's side, but I think we are supposed to kind of be a bit like Luke. You know, you're not making the best choices here. And obviously that's that's the point of the film. So I, I love everything with Luke on, in this film, despite despite him not making the best decisions. And once he gets going, we have the amazing moment where that door opens back on Cloud City to reveal Vader sitting at the table. I think from that moment, the film really ramps up. We get Vader deflecting hands shots from his blaster with his hand, which is awesome. Obviously, it's revealed that, you know, Cloud City is a, is a trap for them. It's a trap for Luke. And yeah, this is where the film like really gets going. I think everything from that point onwards is just fantastic. We have the carbonite scene, um, which is really great and effective. And another thing at the time, I'm sure, was really quite shocking. Obviously, having Han get frozen in carbonite and then just gone from the remainder of the film. And to also have it not resolved by the end, like leaving... Well, there's quite a few cliffhangers that are unresolved by the end of this film. But yeah, having um, a fan-favourite character, like I'm sure he probably had already become at that time, is crazy. And then that you know that moment before he gets frozen, the I love you, I know, um, that's just iconic and really good stuff. And I will say here as well, this is when I noticed like seeing this set and then seeing it again when Luke and Vader finally meet up and they start their, their duel. Just the sets, well, as I've already mentioned, but this freezing chamber set, it's just fantastic. And then the cinematography just in this film in general, I think, is a big step up from the last film. And yeah, it was just particularly noticeable in this um, carbon freezing set. But yeah, all throughout the film, it just looks fantastic. Um, I can't get over how amazing it looks. Um, but yeah, speaking of the fight, that's another huge improvement on the last film, the choreography is immediately a lot better. Not only is it a lot more energetic than what we got in A New Hope, but it is more expansive. You know, Luke and Vader move from 
set to set and have really great interactions within the fight as well. But I do just want to quickly hop back to the other characters because I want to say here, as I said earlier, Lando is one of my favourite characters. The way that everybody treats Lando, I have never, and I thought this was, you know, when I was a kid as well, I've never understood. So everybody gives Lando hate for betraying Han and Leia and all those lot. And I just want to ask what people expected him to do. Because he had the Empire come knocking on his door and he is the, you know, he is in charge of this facility, this cloud city that is housing, as we see, many, many people, you know, so he's responsible for the lives of an awful lot of people. And the Empire comes knocking and they say, hey, you know, Darth Vader himself comes and says, hey, I need you to help me trap these people that you know. You know, he probably said, you know, help me do this or I'm going to start killing all of these citizens that you are responsible for. What else was he going to do? And then even then he could have just gone through with it, but he didn't. I mean, he did, but then, you know, he helps them escape and he tries to set things right, you know, as best as he can. And people still give him for it and I just don't think it's fair and I've never thought it's fair and it bugs me <laughs> yeah I feel very strongly about this Lando is a hero and I will not hear a bad thing said about him and also this is a pretty good place to mention um, that I think unfortunately I, I don't like feeling this way but I think Leia is a lot is a lot better character when Han isn't around to be quite honest even here the way she is is just a lot more reminiscent of the last film when she's going around uh, running and gunning like she did on the death star and i think that's a problem and we'll ha we'll just have to see how leia is in return of the jedi as well um and see if i still feel that way but we return to the fight between luke and vader and it's just it's really good um this has never been one of my favorite lightsaber duels but just watching it this time around i did notice that it you know it is it is good and i i really did quite enjoy it and it's desperate as well i love that i love that about it and it's not just desperate for luke as well even though the fight you know is i wouldn't say it's one-sided but even though i think vader often does for the majority of the fight have the upper hand but it is desperate for vader as well there's that moment where he kind of jumps out at Luke and his breathing is quicker. He's obviously, you know, struggling a bit. And uh, that particular moment as well is like really quick. And, and yeah, you just feel that desperation. It's really good. And then that carries on all the way until Luke gets his hand cut off, which I'm sure was another pretty horrifying, you know, surprising moment at the time. You know, you've had your sort of secondary protagonist frozen, never to be seen again. <laughs> And uh, your main protagonist has just had his hand cut off. And even though he, you know, soon gets it sorted out at the end of the film, you know, people didn't know that at the time. So, you know, that must have been pretty horrifying. And, uh, of course, we have the reveal, the probably most well-known twist in cinematic history. Darth Vader says, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke says, he told me enough. You killed him. And... Vader says, no, I am your father. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame to me that I've never been able to experience, or at least I don't remember ever experiencing that for the first time. I wish I could have done because it's such a apocalyptic reveal. You know, it's the worst possible thing for Luke to hear. You know, that's like rock bottom. So it's crazy and I can't even begin to imagine 
the reactions at the time. It must have been insane. But then there's that very strange moment, which I've always found weird, where Luke lets go and he falls, you'd think, to his death, but he's sort of somehow sucked in through a vent type thing and then somehow finds his way out on some kind of antenna that's uh, hanging off Cloud City, which I'm not sure... I've never been too sure what the implication is for that scene. Um, whether Luke tried to kill himself. he When he lets go, he kind of has a smile on his face. So I'm not sure if he's falling to his death. I'm not sure if he knows what's going to happen if he does let go, if he is going to get sucked into that thing. So the whole... Everything surrounding that particular moment is quite confusing to me. It's something that I've just never understood. But that leads us to Luke calling out to... Leia. In retrospect, it's a nice hint towards their, you know, obviously their familial uh, connection. Um, at the time, I'm sure it was just more intended as a, you know, who's he going to call his friend? So he obviously is reaching out to Leia, and that's about as far as it, it goes. But it's another thing, like with how I talked about in the last episode, with some of the stuff surrounding Obi-Wan. It's nice that future installments have sort of enhanced previous ones i think that's that's another thing um that i'd like to add onto what i said earlier like nothing ever really ruins a previous installment for me like something that happens in a in a future one if it contradicts a previous one like it doesn't ruin it for me but i i love it when a future installment can change something in a previous one it does affect it, but it enhances it instead of kind of hindering it. I love it when, when that happens, and I'm all for that. But yeah, and then after that, uh, you know, Luke is rescued. He's very confused, as I'm sure the audience was at the time. Darth Vader's reaching out to him, trying to talk to him. And yeah, we, we come to the end. It's quite the bold ending, really. There's a lot of stuff up in the air. We've got what's going on with Han and, and uh, Luke and Vader. Like, is, Vader, is what Vader said true? Because I think a lot of people at the time just didn't believe it they were like no vader is lying it can't possibly be true um as i'm sure luke was probably feeling at the time so he really was the quite the audience surrogate uh in that moment very bold ending and it's a far cry from how the first film ended which i think is admirable and i think it was the right way to go but yeah that's the end of the empire strikes back and it's a great film and it's everything that star wars is you know it's the personal family drama it's the the lightsaber fights it's the expansive galaxy you know going from planet to planet all these different locations it's it's exciting action not not just with the duels but with you know the dog fights and then just the the flying through space like all of that all of those points it hits perfectly and then of course it's got the lessons as well you know all the stuff with Yoda and the kind of wisdom that he uh, provides to Luke and the sort of the lesson it tries to teach us in that respect as well. Yeah, everything about this is just star. It's like if you had a Star Wars checklist, this would tick all the boxes. So um, this film is so important in the grand scheme of things when it comes to that. And I do love it and it's a fantastic film. But I gotta say, this time round, I didn't quite enjoy it as much as I have done. I would rank it below A New Hope this time, which is very surprising to me. Because as I said, quite recently, this was my favourite Star Wars film. 
I mean, I, you know, I did say that its place was taken by another film, um, but even then I would have said it was my second favourite, you know, so uh, to have it rank below A New Hope is very new for me, you know, that's not something I expected to happen, so I'm quite excited to see how I feel about the uh, the rest of the films in the saga. I mean, anything could happen at this point, so uh, yeah, that's The Empire Strikes Back, that was directed by Irving Kirshner. It was written by Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan, based on, obviously, a story by George Lucas, the one and only. And yeah, 1980, so that's 40 years ago now, so happy anniversary to you, Empire Strikes Back, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to me talk about it. In the next episode, not next week, that'll be coming in a few days from now, we'll be talking about Episode 6, Return of the Jedi, so stay tuned for that, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.